Well, once again, church, we come to that time where we have the uh, awesome and precious opportunity to look to God and His Word this morning. I'm so grateful for the faithfulness of God that He is faithful in so many ways. And one of those that He proves over and over and over again is He is always faithful to His Word. Amen? And uh, we as God's people always need, when we come together in corporate worship, to gather around the Word of God. So... In just a few moments, I'm going to read from Psalm chapter 37. Before we do so, if you want to go ahead and start turning there, that's fine. Before we do so, no doubt, many of you have been, like me and many others in our community, uh, very concerned about uh, the continued not only spread of the coronavirus, but the advancement of the, of the spread of the coronavirus in recent weeks. Uh, I, I know many of you are, are like me, looking at those numbers every day and seeing we're going into the thousands every single day of new cases and people who are contracting this virus. So we don't need to stop praying for, uh, our, for our community and for our country during this time. For those who have contracted this virus, we need to continue to do that. We need to continue to remain diligent in our own personal observation of the protocols that our government has asked us to. Uh, we certainly uh, are grateful, at least at this time, that uh, the, the spread of the coronavirus has not prevented us from being able to have on-campus worship services, and we kind of have that possibility in the back of our mind that any given Sunday we may have to not be able to have it here for some reason. Uh, but we're going to trust our God, and we're going to continue, as I said, when this thing started in March, we're going to continue to walk forward with, with faith and confidence in our sovereign God, and His plan for us during this time. And we're also going to walk in wisdom as His people through these days and try to be as wise as we can uh, with this. And so would you just kind of join me as we pray uh, for this uh, situation within our community and just as the people of God. Let's just go to our Heavenly Father again this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you today and we know that uh, this, this stuff that's happening in our community is not anything that is news to you. We, we actually take great comfort today, Lord, that while we have great concern about uh, the coronavirus and all the people that are affected by it and, and the, the adjustments that it's made to our daily routine, we are grateful that we know that there's not one second, one moment of our time on this planet that is outside of your sovereign control. There's not one illness that we ever contract that you have not only sovereignly ordained in our lives, but have done so for a purpose. God, we thank you that to this point in our faith family, even those who may have contracted this virus, um, that uh, the effects have been minimal, and we ask for you to continue to offer us that same grace within our faith family and around our community. And we pray, Holy Spirit, for the, 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 the cessation of this virus. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to cause this virus to cease to be able to run its course as effectively as it has. And we pray for wisdom for our leaders, not only for our political leaders, but also for our health experts as they continue to try to treat this. We pray for wisdom for us as a people uh, that we would not engage in personal liberties that are unwise during this time. We pray that you would just give us a spirit of wisdom in our nation uh, to be able to do what's necessary for this virus to go away. And God, we ask for your continued sustaining grace 
for those who have contracted it and are still battling it today. God, we just pray your healing hands upon them, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be in uh, Psalm chapter 37 this morning, and we're going to be talking on the subject of the righteous are never forsaken, uh, because that's really the theme of Psalm 37, as we're going to see. But before we do that, I want us to talk a little bit about where we are as a nation, as a people. We just celebrated our birthday as a nation, and we've, we celebrated our independence and our freedom, but... We also know that these are, are perilous days that we find ourselves in as a country and that for people of faith, it is it's even more perilous and more confusing probably than it's been at any other time. In the next few weeks, we will once again start the process of what by all observations seems to be another very contentious election cycle in our nation. In 2016, we had what was probably not only the most difficult election cycle in my lifetime, but one that was also a very discouraging time for people who love Jesus Christ. It seems as though, and maybe it's not, I, think I am a, a person who enjoys reading presidential history, and, and while we see a lot of vitriol and a lot of contention within our politicians today, it's not like it just started in the last four years. If you go back and study the history of presidential elections, there seems to be always a certain sense of character assassination. It's just that we have 24-hour news media and social media that, that, that accentuates it even more than ever before. But it just appears as though our elections are more vitriolic than they've ever been in our lifetime. We watch as candidates fill our screens with anger and outrage towards one another rather than principled answers for moving forward as a nation. And it seems almost impossible for me to think that we could ever have a candidate who is not only a statesman, but one who fears God and leads our country righteously. On top of this, it seems like as a people... Our nation has completely rejected and abandoned any sense of moral ethic that is based on the Word of God and universal objective truth. It seems that the only universal truth that exists in the United States today is that people should be free to do whatever they want, whenever they want, without any personal limits from government or religion. That seems to be the only universally confirmed truth in our nation. Two weeks ago, the Supreme Court of the United States voted to uphold a decision that not only extends civil rights to the LGBTQ community, but also a decision that radically altered a law that was passed in 1964 known as the Civil Rights Act. And in the process of upholding this decision, they opened up a Pandora's box that has the potential to not only redefine Gender identification as something defined by one's personal orientation rather than one's gender at birth. But they also have potentially opened up a decision that has an impact on Christian institutions in the future going forward. We have watched in the last decade or so as Christian business owners have been forced to decide between participating in offering surfaces that would compromise their personal biblical beliefs 
or be forced to give up their businesses altogether. I don't think any of us ever thought we would see the day that a business would be forced to close because they didn't want to live with their freedom of their religious beliefs. We've watched the Supreme Court of our country consistently uphold the right to exterminate unborn life. Even just this past week, with the Supreme Court refusing to uphold a very common-sense law that was passed in Louisiana because the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court reversed his own personal decisions up to this point because of the political ramifications. And while all this is happening in our culture, we continue to watch as decadence, filth, and smut are consistently glorified and broadcast over our airwaves. We have watched as politicians have openly mocked the concept of biblical marriage, We've watched as celebrities and pundits have openly celebrated decadence and immorality. We live in a culture now where adultery and immorality are presented as glorious and as freedoms, while the traditional picture of one man and one woman committed to one another in a covenant of marriage is seen as an archaic relic of bygone years. And so what are we supposed to do when we see examples of injustice and corruption that seem to go unpunished and green immorality and ungodliness continually openly flaunted? What do we do when Hollywood celebrities and others who openly mock God or live without any regard for biblical values openly demean those of us who do live with biblical values? When their celebrity status gives them a platform to be experts and they live in opulent luxury for a little more than a singing talent or good looks. And what are we to do when those of us, when those who are so openly opposed to biblical values, to Jesus Christ, and to the Bible as the Word of God, what do we do when those people seem to prosper while God's people seem to suffer? God's Word provides answers for us and perspective for these difficult days. And honestly, I would say to you, the first thing is that many of us would do well to turn off Fox News and other media and pick up God's Word and begin to immerse ourselves in the goodness and faithfulness of God instead of getting ourselves all worked up about a world that chooses to live without Him. I think most of us as God's people would do well to turn the television off and to open the Bible up more to get the perspective that we need in these days. In my personal observation, it seems that the general response of most Christians today is simply personal outrage. But we need to be careful of the temptation to retaliate to the culture and to the world that we are in with the same outrage that we see displayed within that culture. We need to be careful about that. I can understand it because many of us feel outrage and anger, but we do so because we have forgotten that we know a God who is greater than the days in which we live in. We have forgotten 
that we know a God who is greater than our culture and greater than these times. Ed Stetzer wrote a book last year in light of some of the things that happened in 2016 and, and in the last couple of years. He wrote a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage, How to Bring Out Our Best When the World is at Its Worst. And in this book, he exposes several lies that Christians tend to believe these days. And one of those lies is the lie that my personal outrage is the same thing as righteous anger. And unfortunately, what I see many times as I hear Christians talk, or more importantly, as I observe our social media post, is that most of the time we're not led by a righteous sense of anger and indignation. We're led by a personal sense of outrage. And we tend to think that we will win by shouting at the culture rather than praying and serving the culture. And so that's why we come to a psalm like Psalm 37, because this is what's classified as a wisdom psalm. And the purpose of Psalm 37 is to guide the reader to apply biblical principles of wisdom to his or her life. And it's a reminder to us that one of our greatest needs in our lives is spiritual wisdom. And so much of what we see in our lives and so much of what we see across our television screens is simply the result of a world that lacks spiritual wisdom. And so God's Word provides that for us and becomes for us an anchor in the midst of turbulent times. And so with that in mind, I invite you to read with me Psalm 37 this morning, which serves as our primary text and reminds you that the Lord will never forsake His righteous ones. Psalm 37 verse 1, it says that He is, this is a Psalm of David, and verse 1 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, or be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In days of famine they will have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish 
Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Those cursed by Him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. In a passage that I can really relate to in verse 25, I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. Behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall altogether be destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. What a great word. As you read this, you see why it's called a wisdom psalm because it sounds a lot like reading the book of Proverbs, doesn't it? It's a series of different, uh, just different provincial um, excerpts teaching us how as the people of God to walk in wisdom and how to righteously react to the wickedness that we see around us. Now in a 40 verse psalm like this, it's very hard to do what you need to to break it all down, you know, expositorily as I would like to in the short time that we have today. So let me just summarize Psalm 37 with this central truth that we see and that is no matter how much evil may temporarily reign in this fallen world. God will never forsake nor abandon His righteous ones. Now we could just stop there and pray and and we would do good if we would remember that, right? No matter how much evil may temporarily reign in this fallen world, God will never forsake nor abandon His righteous ones. And now think about it, if you embed that truth in your heart, how much is that going to change what you see when you watch our news channels on television this week? And you see the chaos and the evil and the craziness of our world and you begin to wonder what in the world is wrong with our culture. And, but if you will just remember that no matter how much evil may temporarily reign in this fallen world, God will never forsake or abandon His righteous ones. It's going to change the way you see things on television. It's going to change the way you see things on Facebook and social media. It may even change the way you react to some of the things you see. It may even change your your things that you decide to post in response to some of the things that you see if you will simply remember that no matter how much 
Evil may temporarily reign in this fallen world. Our God will never forsake nor abandon His righteous ones. Never. So I want us to look at three things real quick today that I see in this scripture that are just repeated over and over and over again. And the first of those is the fading glory of the wicked. The fading glory of the wicked. The psalmist really begins this in verse 1 and 2, but he repeats it over and over and over again throughout this psalm. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For soon they will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. We, we planted some, uh, some herbs on our back porch this, this last uh, few weeks, and and one of those we planted was some cilantro. Now, most everything else is still growing, but the cilantro has, has just basically given up the ghost. And, uh, and I think about that when I read this, that, that soon whatever's going on in our world is going to fade just like that cilantro that lasted about three weeks on my back porch. There's the fading glory of the wicked. Now the psalmist sets up and voices a frustration that many of us who are redeemed and children of God feel at the apparent prosperity that we see around us of those who live without fear or honor of God. When we, when we see celebrities who openly mock biblical values and yet continue to line their pockets with millions and millions of dollars and live in opulent luxury... And it makes us feel angry. But he's setting up a contrast between the present but fading glory of those who live without regard for God and His law with those who are righteous and trust in Him. You see that contrast throughout the psalm as he sets up those who live without regard for God versus those who are righteous, who are blessed, who are the children of God. And the righteous ones may not receive earthly accolades in this world, but their glory is eternal and future. Over 20 times, this psalm refers to the wicked. They are categorized as evildoers, transgressions, transgressors, or enemies of God. They are simply people who live with little more than their own sensuality and lust. And the fact that, they, that those who have evil and sinful agendas seem not only to get away with their evil agendas, but seem to oftentimes prosper from it, causes those of us who follow Christ to fret and sometimes even to be envious of their success in their earthly prosperity. But as we read the psalmist questions, we are reminded that what we feel in our days is not something unique that's just happening to us. Even the psalmist himself, thousands of years ago when he wrote this, looked out at the evil that was prospering in his world and felt the same kinds of things that you and I feel in 2020. You see, ever since sin entered into this world, it has brought the promise of prosperity while sowing the seeds of destruction. And God's people have always been concerned with the prosperity of the wicked while they observe how God's servants seem to suffer. If you remember your Old Testament history, the nation of Israel sought refuge in Egypt as, as immigrants. They sought refuge from, from a, a famine. But they were soon enslaved and turned into the slaves of the nation of Egypt. And they watched as the Pharaohs live in, it lived in opulence in their palaces 
and set themselves up as gods while the Israelites themselves struggled under the yoke of slavery and oppression. Fast forward a few years and because of their own idolatry and unfaithfulness, Israel would be sent into exile into the mighty pagan nation of Babylon. And they would spend 70 years wondering why they were being punished for idolatry while the great idolatrous nation of Babylon prospered around them. The first century Jews lived under the weight of the oppressive Roman government that had dominated the known world for hundreds of years while that same government was marked by paganism, immorality, and greed. And while the Caesars enjoyed political and military success, the Israelites lived as people with an occupying army in their home. It seems like the consistent theme throughout God's dealings with His people in Scripture is that wickedness seems to prosper while righteousness seems to go unnoticed. But the psalmist reminds us here that the glory of the wicked isn't all that it seems. And while at the present time when we look into our world, the wicked may be prospering, God reminds us that He measures investments in the long-term future. And so God gives us three promises here about the temporal fading glory of the wicked. And the first of those is that their, quote, success is short-lived. Whatever success they may be experiencing is temporal. It's short-lived. He says in verse 2, they will soon fade like the grass. And what seems like greener pastures today in all likelihood will look like a dying wasteland tomorrow. In verse 10, he says, In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. In verse 20, he says, Like smoke, they vanish away. Verse 28, they are cut off. Do you see the temporary nature of the prosperity of the wicked? We must remember that we do not live our lives in a personal vacuum, that we are part of a grand story that our God has been crafting for a long time. And that we can look back and see many examples throughout history of evil men who seem to temporarily prosper for a time who are now nothing more than a fading memory or a few paragraphs in a history book. And if you think about it, you can likely remember some people who at one time seemed to have the world on their shoulders only to lose it because of their self-destructive behavior and immoral choices. In recent years, we've witnessed the downfall in our own culture of men like Kevin Spacey, Harvey Weinstein, and Matt Lauer who once had great success and were on top of their craft only to find that success ripped away and are now seen as public disgraces. The success of the wicked is short-lived. And secondly, the motives of the wicked are destructive. Their motives are destructive. Over and over again, God simply calls them wicked and evildoers. He sees their, the motives behind their actions. No matter how sincere, no matter how flattering, no matter how persuasive their speech, the motives of those without God are always self-serving, and self-serving motives almost always lead to self-destruction because self-serving motives take God out of the equation. And this is also important because in our culture we are constantly bombarded verbally as the people of God in the media by cultural elites who talk smoothly 
and seem to be able to influence so many people with the persuasiveness of their words. And these elitists, when they think of those like us who follow God's ways, who adhere to the Bible as God's word, they see us as ignorant. They see us as intolerant. And in some cases, they see our personal values as destructive. In our culture today, if you espouse that marriage is an institution created by God for one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage for life, if you espouse that publicly, you are seen as saying something that is destructive to the value and worth and dignity of people in our culture. But the reality is that all human motives without the Lord are self-serving and destructive. And people without God are capable of great acts of benevolence and generosity, but the God they are serving is self, and the success that it leads to will ultimately consume them. Their motives are destructive. But thirdly, the psalmist tells us over and over and over again, their end is in God's hands. Their end is in God's hands. And God didn't leave it up to you and me to be the agent of their destruction. Verse 9 says that the evildoers will be cut off. Verse 13 says the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees their day is coming. Think about that for a second. When we turn on Fox News and we see some of the stuff that's happening on our screen and we get angry, righteously so sometimes, at what we see, the Lord looks down and he laughs. Because he knows what the end of the story is. He knows that there's a day that's coming. God is not sitting in heaven on a throne with a remote control, wringing his hands over what's happening in our country today. God has a plan. And he knows that there is a day of righteous judgment coming. Ultimately, whatever success the wicked have... They are having because it is being allowed by the Lord in this time and that God is the ultimate avenger. And we would do well to remember that all of our days are numbered, including those of the wicked. Their end is in God's hands. But secondly, throughout this psalm, we see the faithful promises of the Lord. If I was preaching this psalm a little bit differently today, I would probably do so by just simply pointing out all of the different promises that God makes in this text. I won't be able to do so today because to do so would take too long, but we see promises over and over again in verse 6, in verse 11, in verse 16, in verse 18, in verse 23, in verse 37. Throughout this psalm, David reminds us over and over again about the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. And we would do well to remember that the Bible is loaded with thousands of promises from God to His people. God promised His people that as we obeyed Him and as we glorified Him throughout the nations, that God's blessing would be upon His people. David recounts several promises that God makes. In verse 11, he, he, he refers to inheriting the land. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. He says that the righteous shall inherit the land later in the psalm and that those who are blessed by God shall inherit the land. There's this continual promise throughout this psalm of inheriting the land. Now, 
When this psalm was written in the Jewish time, it was a timeless promise that had once been made to Abraham, who was told by God that the land in which he dwelt was given to him and his descendants, and the Jews placed great stock in that homeland. And so while they were slaves in Egypt, they longed to return to their land that had been promised them by God. And while they were wanderers in the wilderness, they recounted those promises that one day they would inherit the land. When they went into battle with Jericho, they did so fueled by the promise of that inheritance. And when they were exiles in Babylon, they remembered the promise from Jeremiah that one day they would be brought back home. And all throughout their circumstances, they knew that their future was in the land that had been promised to them by God. And we must remember that this planet that we currently occupy is under the domain of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has promised its future to those who joyfully and willingly bow to Him as King. One day, this world will be the inheritance of the righteous. And every square inch will, will, will belong not only to the Lord Jesus Christ, but to those who have willingly and purposefully chosen to follow Him in this life. God made many other important promises in this psalm. In verse 6, He says, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the the noonday. Justice is coming for the people of God and it's going to be broadcast just like it was something happening in the middle of the day. Verse 16, better is the little that the righteous currently have than the abundance of the wicked. Don't look out on the prosperity of the wicked and be envious because it's better to have a little bit with righteousness than it is to have abundance and wickedness rule your heart. And God has promised that you may not have as much tangibly in your life when you compare it to the godless people around you, but it's not what you have, but who you have that matters. Verse 18, the Bible tells us that the heritage of the righteous is preserved, that our heritage remains forever, and that your current circumstances cannot take away the spiritual heritage between you and God. Verse 23 says, when you delight yourself in the way of God, He will order and establish your steps. Verse 25 says, the righteous are never to be forsaken, and God's children will not be begging for bread. You see, God's plans and purposes in your life are eternal and timeless. And we need to remember that God is more interested in our long-term investment and prosperity than in our short-term gain. And that God's promise throughout this psalm is that the righteous are never Never, never forsaken. No matter the prosperity of the wicked, no matter how hard the circumstances may be pressing around you, God never forsakes His righteous ones. Which brings us thirdly and finally to the firm resolve of the righteous. He contrasts in verses 1 and 2 the, the fading glory of the wicked and then he begins and going back and forth throughout this psalm, telling us not only the promises of God, but the ways that we as God's people should resolve to act in the face of an evil, destructive world that we live in. How should we resolve to live in light of the fact that not only does evil seem to prosper, but we know that whatever prosperity they have is short-lived? What do we do? 
The psalmist tells you and me in light of this truth at least six decisions, and we could go through a bunch of them here, but there are at least six decisions that we as God's people should make that should guide us. The first of those is that we should trust in the sovereign goodness of the Lord. We should trust in the sovereign goodness of the Lord. In verse 3, the psalmist says, trust. And over and over again throughout this this psalm, we see that we are to trust in the Lord. What does trust mean? Trust means that we know that our Heavenly Father has got this under control. Trust is the foundation of our faith. Trust is the essence of faith. And we need to remember that the New Testament says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because whoever would draw near to God must not only believe that He exists, but that He rewards those who seek Him. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. You don't know as much as you think you know. You are not the expert of our culture that you think you are. Trust in the sovereign goodness of the Lord no matter how bad things may get around us. Trust in the Lord and do good, he says. Secondly, Determine to grow wherever God plants you. Determine to grow wherever God plants you. Because we trust in Him and not in what we see, we are not to withdraw from the world when we see the wicked prosper. No, instead, he says in verse 3, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Dwell in the land. What does that mean? It means that Jesus told us that we are to be salt and light in our world, declaring God's glory and expanding God's influence. And we started out this year with the promise of Jeremiah 29.7 that says that we are to seek the welfare of the city that God has sent us and to pray to the Lord on its behalf because in its welfare we will find our own welfare. God wants us to dwell wherever He has planted us and to seek the welfare of our city. And in doing so, as we seek the welfare of our city, sometimes it will seem like those without God often prosper and benefit, but that's really not any of our business. Our job is to trust in in, in our God and dwell where He plants us. And think about this for a second. Rather than saying... I can't believe how bad our world is getting. And fretting your hands over the current situation in our world, why don't you just think about the fact that God in His sovereignty has determined that you would be born and live in this time and in this place as a citizen of the kingdom of God and understand that God has a purpose for you and that purpose is not to be a cultural critic to complain about everything. Your job is to be salt and light and to dwell where God has planted you. Number three, treasure Christ above all else. Treasure Christ above all else. Look at verse 
Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, this verse is a verse that has been snatched and misquoted by the prosperity gospel. It's thrown on coffee cups and t-shirts and we see this as this promise that if we will just love the Lord, that God will prosper us. But the immediate context of this verse actually suggests that it's the workers of evil that are currently but temporarily prospering and experiencing good fortune. And in the light of that, the psalmist says, don't worry about the prosperity of the wicked. You delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart eventually. Treasure Christ above all else. As God's people, we are not to delight ourselves in the stuff of this world. We're not to find our delight in personal status or money or possessions or experiences. But we are to delight in Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 9 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the, in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Treasure Christ above all else. And here's why Psalm 37.4 is extremely important. It's not, a, it's not because it's a, it's, a, it's a magical genie that you rub, and that if you delight yourself in the Lord, boom, everything will turn out good. No, what he's saying to us is this. Whatever controls your heart determines your direction and motivates your decisions. And so delight yourself in the Lord and let that central delight lead you and guide you. Number four, commit to follow God's ways always. Commit to follow God's ways always. That's what verse five says. Commit your way to the Lord. Because his righteous ones live with trust in God's promises and purposes and plans. Because we dwell where he places us. Because Jesus is to be the delight of our heart. Then you and I can commit our ways in life instead of trying to figure out life on our own. We are to commit to being obedient to him and know, as this psalm says, that if we will commit our ways to him and trust in him, he will act on our behalf. No matter what happens, no matter how much evil seems to prosper, Commit all of your ways to God. Ask every single morning when you get up and you read your Bible and you do your devotion, say, God, I want to commit myself to your ways today. Make me an agent of salt and light to the culture around me. And no matter what happens, guide my heart, guide my responses, guard my mouth. I want to commit my ways to your ways always. Number five. Wait on His perfect timing. Wait on His perfect timing. Verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. That would be a great verse for probably 75% of us in the church today. Because most of us, let's be really honest, are really bad at waiting, aren't we? You go to the restaurant and the hostess tells you it will take 30 minutes for a table and you get about 20 minutes and your knee is starting to bounce up and down and you're just getting antsy, aren't you? 
and let it go 31 minutes and there's going to be a reckoning, right? We're terrible at waiting. We are a society that is obsessed with instant gratification. And the problem is when we see people who get what they want through underhanded ways, we begin to wonder whether the end justifies the means. And yet our God says, be still, wait patiently for Him. Do not fret yourself over the one who prospers in His way. Wait on God's perfect timing. And then number six, I would just summarize it this way. Manage your reactions carefully. Manage your reactions carefully. Verse 8 says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. David tells us to put away anger and not to get all anxious trying to get up and, and keep up and get ahead in our world. And we need to remember that it is not our place to get angry with the wicked because we are not the one that they have ultimately offended. Let me say that again. We need to be very careful about getting angry with the wicked around us because ultimately we're not the one whom they have offended. He is. And the psalmist tells us clearly that the path of worry and anxiety actually leads to the very same evil practices that we condemn in others. That's why Jesus said, don't be trying to take out the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a log sticking out of your own. You remember that? And he didn't say, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye. He didn't say, don't administer loving correction to your brother. What did he say do? First, Take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to help your brother take the speck out of his. So before we start firing off at the things that are going on around us, we need to manage our reactions carefully and understand that sometimes we do more damage to the lost around us by screaming at them than we do by serving them and by praying for them. I learned a principle about 20 years ago that when it comes to people that I disagree with, if I will commit to pray for them twice as much as I criticize them, I would be doing good. Now, I don't say that I don't have the right to criticize people I disagree with, but I try as much as possible to pray for them twice as much as I disagree with them. And when I do that, I find one of two things happen. Either I pray for them a whole lot more or I criticize them a whole lot less. Let's manage our reactions carefully. The point of all of this is that as God's people, we must remember that God has never and will never forsaken us. No matter how much those without God seem to prosper, our God is faithful. He is taking care of us. He did not forsake us in our sin, but He sent His Son to save us. And if He would go to those lengths to take care of our greatest spiritual need, then we know that He will take care of us as well here as long as we focus our hearts on him. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you so much this morning that we have an anchor in your word that we can look to in the chaos of the world around us where wickedness seems to prosper, where evil seems to advance, where people who have no regard for you seem to be able to benefit from it while those who are righteous seem to be ignored 
We understand that while that may feel that way in our present time in this culture, we know from the assurance of your word that you have not forsaken us, you have never forsaken us, and you never will forsake us. And that no matter what may happen in our world right now, that the future of this planet, the future of your kingdom belongs to those who have willingly bowed the knee to you. And so we do that today, King Jesus. We bow our knee to you. We we declare this morning that we want to be people who are salt and light, who are influencers in our culture, and people who are waiting on you and your perfect timing in our life to bring justice to this world. Father, I pray for anybody that's in this place today that does not know you, that's never bowed their knee to you in submission. Father, that you would speak to their heart, that you would reveal to them their need for a Savior, that you would give them the faith to believe today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.